Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. WBEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Currently, we are not streaming live on WBEW.org. However, you can check us out on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Instagram. And our podcast and iTunes as well. You can search us under Indigo Radio. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. So this show today is about white supremacy. It's continuing a show we had two weeks ago. Last week we had a show about Lebanon. So we have a few educators with us that will be calling in today to talk about their take and historical perspective on supremacy. Um, and we hope you'll stay with us. We're going to kick this song off with a song by Peter Gabriel called Biko, who my son is named after. This song was written for a very brave man. A man who preached nonviolence in a state which has racism enshrined in its constitution. A man who was imprisoned, tortured, and killed in a jail in South Africa. This is for Stephen Biko. Yeah. 
welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM Brattleboro Community Radio Station. And that was Peter Gabriel with the song Biko. And today we're talking about white supremacy and its role and history in the United States. And we have a few guests today. And our first guest is... Dottie Morris, Chief Officer of Diversity at Keene State College, longtime educator and psychologist. Dottie, can you hear us? Yes, I'm here. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> so, Dottie, um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say in the introduction, but we kind of wanted to talk to you about the definition of white supremacy and how you see it in your work and your day-to-day life. Okay. Well, the way that I define white supremacy is this whole idea of of anything that honors or reinforces uh, the superiority of, of people who we socially define as white. And it can play out in so many ways. So we could see it in the more overt way when people are marching down the street talking about, you know, that they are white and superior and all of those sorts of things. But it can also happen in more uh, subtle ways, and it can be just as destructive. So having rules and policies and procedures that honor uh, the way that uh, the worldview of people who we've socially constructed is white. So mm-hmm. I see it played out, and it, and it plays out in, real, like I said, really subtle ways, but equally as destructive. And I see it in the way that we think about what is, quote, good work, what mm-hmm. is good scholarship, what is uh, the best way to do things in the world. And it's usually geared towards uh, the way that... Um, people who are white would think about the world. So we have to uh, figure out ways to confront that on our daily basis. Mm-hmm. And um, can you tell us some of the ways that you um, address white supremacy when you do encounter it day to day? Well, I try to call it out. I basically try to say exactly what it is and basically to tr- provide uh, like multiple narratives of a situation. So if someone is saying, this is good scholarship, I always say, uh, whose standards are we using? And then people say, well, we're just using standards. I'm like, no, we're not. We're basically, when you look at this, when you really look at how we define good scholarship, it, it's more or less uh, tilted towards the advantage of uh, people who are coming from a white worldview mm-hmm. or, um, you know, what uh, Bell Hooks calls a white supremacist, a white supremacist, wait, excuse me, a white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist kind of worldview. And so whenever I see it, I try to just kind of really cause people to think about um, what's underlining as opposed to assuming that it's universal. Mm-hmm. And I also think about, like, if, if, if you're in a room full of people of color, that mm-hmm. there is still white supremacy in that oh. room, and how do we engage in that and learn ourselves about what white supremacy is and how it lives in all of us. Yeah, that's true, because what happens, we've bought into the narrative of our own inferiority. Um, and it, 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 it was uh, years in the making, so this just didn't happen overnight. Um, so basically to justify behavior uh, that was cruel behavior towards us, so things like slavery or uh, the stealing of land uh, from as it relates to American Indians or placing uh, Japanese folks in internment camps. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a justification uh, for that treatment. And that's the way abuse works, is the person who is being abused uh, will internalize it mm-hmm. and believe the narrative of those who are abusing them. And I think that that has happened. And what we have to do is we have to uh, do something called, we have to kind of remember, because we've been dismembered. And so what happens, uh, because we've been dismembered, uh, we have to remember, we have to remember that we are uh, very worthy, very important, important and not inferior. And so we have to do that by remembering who we were, in quotes, as people before some of this abuse started to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's a hard process because, uh, you know, sometimes it, it rears its ugly head even with me, and I have to really catch myself and consciously say mm-hmm. uh, certain things to myself. So, you know, if I'm talking to younger kids of color, if I tell them, wow, you're being so loud, be quiet, uh, you know, what message am I sending them about uh, their voice? And, and, and if I silence their voice, then 
because I, they're not acting the white way, then what am I doing except, uh-huh. you know, reinforcing that the white way is the right way? Right. And so I think that uh, it does play out, you know, when we think about uh, colorism mm-hmm. within certain communities, when we think about hair texture, uh, what's good hair? <laughs> so I think right. that we have to work really hard to intentionally uh, come up with ways to decolonize our minds. Mm. Um, could you talk a little bit about sort of the, what's been going on um, in the South, particularly in uh, Charlottesville and with statues, um, and how does that fit in the current climate with, uh, with what you've been saying about white supremacy? Well, again, it's been many years in the making, and for some of us, uh, you know, who have been banging the drum, mm-hmm. um, and saying that uh, these things are happening, um, and now they're just, it has blown up to a point uh, that people are like, you know, they can no longer, be, well, some people can still be in denial, but for the most part, most people are not in denial. But there has always been kind of this low grade, because we've never taken uh, care of, you know, white supremacy. We've always only put you know, Band-Aids on, almost putting Band-Aids on cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we come up with laws that are with little or no teeth to them. Um, we don't attend to process uh, of how to adequately, uh, you know, make those laws come into uh, practice. Uh, and I think that as a result of that, we saw what we saw a few weeks ago at Charlottesville. And it's not just uh, what's happening in Charlottesville, but mm-hmm. it's it's all throughout the United States, and yeah. it's because we've never really dealt with colonization and the impact of colonization and imperialism and all of those things. We just haven't dealt with them adequately. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't even had real conversations. We haven't gone through truth and reconciliation. And there are so many things that we have to, to get to the core of the issue instead of just some of the surface things. So uh, what we saw being played out in Charlottesville um, it was almost 40 years ago that this, a similar kind of thing happened uh, with, uh, the, with, uh, with the Klan asking to march oh, yeah. in uh, Stokey. Yeah, so it was almost 40 years ago. And, and as a child, I can remember the Klan marching yeah. and crosses burning. So and that was in Ohio, that, right? For listeners who might not Ohio. know anything about that. Um, could oh, you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I don't know if everyone yeah. knows about, was it Skokie, was it Ohio? Yeah, it was in Stokey in 1977. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan uh, wanted permission to march through, let, let, let's understand, to march through a primarily Jewish community, and a lot of those folks were survivors of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they were basically saying, you know, we're going to march through your community and re-traumatize you, in my words. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that was 40 years ago, and, and we're still having the same conversation today. And I think we're having that same conversation because we didn't really truly examine or analyze uh, the impact of that type of behavior in 1977. And so it's not surprising in 2017, we're still having the same dialogue. (laughs) Yes. Earlier when you mentioned Bell Hooks, the quote from Bell Hooks, uh, Mm -hmm. you mentioned capitalism. And people often talk about white supremacy as a poor white folks thing, that poor white folks are prejudiced. And I was wondering how you link those two together and what you think about that. Yeah. You know, white supremacy has, 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 it has no, uh, it doesn't discriminate (laughs) because I think that wealthy uh, white people um, based on capitalism have really been, they really benefited from, uh, the idea of uh, the subjugation of people, particularly people of color. Um, so when you think about even in Vermont, uh, the land that certain people have acquired was as a result of subjugation of the of the native people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not just something that poor white folks, uh, as a matter of fact, poor white folks are often used in the service of wealthy white folks mm-hmm. uh, to uh, be able to play out uh, the narrative around white supremacy in, 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 a, in a way that it's easy to point the finger at the poor person because it's more obvious. And so part of it becomes uh, kind of an economic gain for those in power. And, then, uh, and it doesn't benefit poor white folks as much as they think it does. And, and I think that the joining together of poor white folks and people of color would be a powerful event in this country. And I think that those in power, the 1%, once again, based on capitalism, 
they know that if that joining happened in reality, that it would up, upset the current system that we have. And so it behooves them to keep that kind of wedge between uh, poor people, uh, white people, and people of color, um, because mm-hmm. it, it, it just would mess up their gig, in other words, uh, and their, their uh, acquisition of resources. So I don't think it's a poor white person thing. I think it's uh, all of our things. And I think that when we add capitalism, um, wealthy white folks benefit greatly from white supremacy and keeping it going. And I'm wondering about specifically, because I know in my work with young people, it really is a struggle to build that bridge between mm-hmm. um, young white folks, working class white folks, and people of color who might be in the same um, class. And so I was wondering if you've had any successes or any things that you've done that have worked really well or any vision that you have for going forward. Oh, yeah, that's a, that is a hard one because they, they're hearing the narrative in so many different places and it gets reinforced that even those kids who want to work against white supremacy, just think about the, you know, you are one person that's given them uh, certain kinds of ideas and beliefs. But just think about the multiple other ways, you know. Mm-hmm. Everything from YouTube to uh, other forms of social media to the, you know, television to print material. So I think that part of what I have tried to do, and um, I did it the other night, is to just basically tell everybody <laughs> that, uh, especially young people, and I'm thinking college-age students, and I did tell it to a group of high school students last week, we've all been snookered, and we've all been led to believe, and then I go on and tell them this kind of, uh, false myth about the Americas, and that it is hard for us to back up and really take a look at that. So I think that part of it is basically saying that we've all been lied to, and this is how we've been lied to, um, by saying that one group was superior to another group. So I always talk a lot about the social construction of race and how race is something that we've given meaning to, and so if that's the case, we can redefine it and reconstruct it in a way that it's not so devastating for most of us, uh, or for all of us. And so I, I, you know, I try to show how uh, the, the machine of, of capitalism um, works on our being um, divided. Mm-hmm. And it, it's been working perfectly because of that. And so I try to talk about how we need to reconstruct this idea of, of uh what's really happening you know we have to talk about what's really happening and and i even tell them i would venture to say that it would be hard for you to believe me what i'm saying right now because it's so out of the realms of possibility in your world but just entertain for a moment that this really happened that this whole society that we're living in has been constructed in order for a few to be successful um and to control what is happening. And so we analyze everything from, you know, like a newspaper, we'll pull it out and we'll say, okay, let's see who owns this newspaper. Do some research on who owns the new- newspaper and why it benefits them to print this story this way. And to compare that to the same story in another newspaper and it has a different spin. And then who is this? So this whole idea of critical thinking is, to me, is not just something that you write on your goals and aspirations, but it's something that we really start to, to teach young people. How do you think in a very critical way that you're not just taking everything in lock, stock, and barrel? Mm-hmm. Um, and I also tell, you know, like poor white kids, I say, I know it's hard to hear that you have white privilege, <laughs> because that's the first thing that people want to say. I don't have privilege. I don't mm-hmm. have anything. So what I usually do is is, is try to impress upon them that's one form of privilege, and that's a form of privilege uh, that they have uh, in the same way that, you know, some of us might have education privilege. Uh, but it, it, it continues to have that kind of uh, effect on the whole society when we're not able to drill down deep enough to understand what's beneath all of what we're experiencing now. So it is very, that's a very hard and tricky kind of process because what will happen, and I warn them, is that the minute you start to do this work, you will meet with white resistance of your peers. And why are you so interested in that? So I try to do as much preparation, like laying the groundwork, and then try to give some skills, uh, including, you know, 
some skills of how do they uh, work with their uh, white peers. Uh, but it is hard. <laughs> it's very hard. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for speaking with us today. That was really um, enlightening. And um, thank you, and we hope to, to speak with you again very soon. Um, well, thank you very much for having me. All right. Thank Thanks, you, Daddy. Daddy. Take care. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye. So you're listening to uh, Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. And we just had a conversation with Dottie Morris, who is the chief um, diversity, chief officer of diversity at Keene State College. And she talked about what the, the, the definition of white supremacy and how it manifests itself in our daily lives and how to how to combat it and how to build solidarity between poor white students and um, students of color. So we have another guest coming up. Um, he, Chris Defer Tennyson, Tennyson um, and he is a professor of Africana Studies and History at Hampshire College. But before we invite him onto the show, we'll let's take a break and listen to um, Arrested Development, Mr. Wendell.
Today's programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. With about 30,000 horses in Vermont, it's very likely you'll meet one on the road. Be alert and be cautious. Horses react unpredictably, so look to the rider for guidance, follow arm signals, and keep your cool. Motorists should slow down and pass wide around the horse. Riders stay in single file on the right-hand side of the road. Drivers don't honk the horn or rev the engine. Mutual respect may save a life. Brought to you by the Vermont Horse Council, Vermont Farm Bureau, and University of Vermont Extension. And welcome back. This is WVEW 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guest and not the radio station. Um, so we're about to be joined by our guest, um, Chris Tennyson, in a second. He's talking to our producer. <laughs> Right oh. now. Oh, we forgot to introduce ourselves. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and well, Lauren Pearlstein is on the board today. Thank you, Lauren. And uh, I'm Nina Kunimoto, a local educator. Uh, Michaela Sims, local educator. And we have Corey Sorensen oh. in the building. Yes. We were kind of Facebook living, but it didn't work too well because you can't hear the callers. <laughs> Oops. And so we should have Chris Tennyson on the line. Chris, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you well. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. And so I just okay. did a really rough introduction. Um, so I don't, wasn't sure if you're going to have anything to add that you're an Africana Studies and History professor at Hampshire College. Do you have anything to add to that? No, that, that that's fine. <laughs> Activist, maybe? <laughs> yeah, I'm a committed individual. Oh, I like that. Happy to be living and breathing in this moment, but we've got a lot of work to do. I know that's right. So I'm so happy to have you with us. I, we met briefly some years ago, and I and yep. stayed in contact um, periodically. Um, but I really, based on your knowledge, would like you to talk about the history of white supremacy. We previously spoke to Dottie Morris, the chief officer of diversity at Keene State College, about how she deals with it on a day-to-day basis. But um, we really like to delve into the history and origin in this country. Well, thanks for having me. I think um, it's a wonderful time to be talking about this issue. It's, it's probably a little late in terms of just our awareness and commitment to being more aware. Um, historically, we're, we're, we're way behind schedule on this question of how we got to this moment of a Dylan Roof, of a um, Charlottesville, et cetera, and of a, of a President Trump. You know, like, how do we get to this moment? Um, and historians have been troubled with this for a long time. and But, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, we have the, you know, the wherewithal and the advantage of kind of using the past as our guide to the present and, in fact, the future. And so um, we have a long history of writing and thinking about how we got to this point. Um, it's going to be hard to do it in the, the limited amount of time, but I'll just jump right in and just say, uh, when we think about white supremacy, um, it's, it's about white people, and then it's larger than white people. Mm. And by that, we mean it goes beyond just the day-to-day interactions, but it's really about an ideology, a set of principles and shared mm. practices that people have over time um, and over a long historical process invested in. Mm-hmm. And some of that has been uh, deeply violent. Uh, most of it has been deeply violent, I should say. And then other parts of it have been more or less benign, like the creation of particular laws that don't necessarily have on their face white supremacy, but they have that in their effect. And Mm -hmm. so when we think about white supremacy, we're talking about a system to maintain power and privilege and obviously uh, wealth, um, Mm -hmm. land, 
you know, acquisitions. And so I, I tend to try to move away from talking about white supremacy as if white people are actually supreme mm-hmm. and just really talking about uh, greed, you know, white greed um, and, and thinking about that historically. Possessions and, and the sense of lo- losing possessions when people um, ask for their rights to be respected or ask for um, them to share these resources. And so it's really a mashup, if you will, of a number of different forces that include uh, education, that include religion, that include um, history and the construction of history, particularly after the Civil War, that got us to this moment of feeling that um, now now it's time to really address this stuff head on. So I know I've packed a lot into that, uh, but you can follow up and then we can continue to, to stretch it out a little bit. No, I, and previously we were discussing also, you mentioned wealth and wealth accumulation, um, the sure. link of supremacy or um, to capitalism as we yep. know it today. How do you... Yeah, I mean, I think the, the basis of the thing, the whole thing is, is in how we understand American society as it relates to this question is, is enslavement. You know, enslavement was a wealth-producing... Uh, system, um, but it's also a political producing system, and by that we're talking about the way in which society is arranged in accordance to a, a set of beliefs that a particular group is meant to serve always, and a particular group is meant to be served always. Um, so those kinds of um, that interaction, that transaction, if you will, is 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 deeply. Uh, it's at the heart of everything that we're talking about. You can't you can't get an American society or American nation or the United States without enslavement, without genocide, without land theft. Um, and so those are the the foundation. That's the kernel of of the modern society that we that we are citizens of, or that we are just spatial citizens of. Meaning, we're just members of this particular society, whether we have legal documentation or not. Mm-hmm. The point is is that that's those those pieces of, of capitalism, nation making, racial hierarchy, that's the kernel. You know, that's the kernel of of this modern society. So absolutely uh, capitalism and capitalist development and accumulation is definitely central to our construction of American democracy or con- constitutional democracy. Mm-hmm. And could you, um, hi, this is Nina. I'm co-hosting with Michaela. Um, could you talk a little bit about how uh, poor white folks play into sort of holding up this ideology and also to hold up a certain group of people in our society from accumulate, accumulating the wealth? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the ish, ish, interesting pieces that I think I, I like to talk about uh, with a lot of my students, which mm-hmm. is just how do you, you know, people who aren't economically benefiting, mm-hmm. but they have the, the kind of uh, pigmentation qualification to, right. to, to be considered white, mm-hmm. but they're not necessarily advancing in society. Why do they stay tied to it? And um, for this, I look at social psychologists who have really, you know, done a wonderful job helping to expose the psychological power of racism, right? There's a psychological piece that you think that you're benefiting, even if economically and materially you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the key elements that we need to really unpack. The unfortunate thing is that many folks who are so situated as a poor white, if that's a, their identity, they're, they're most unwilling to even ask the question of how they got to that point, right? And so, or if they do, they answer it through a racial lens, which is to say that somebody else is, somebody else who's not white is to blame for, for their condition. So that's a very, um, very important area that we have to really talk about. Um, but just to go back to the slavery uh, reference that I mentioned earlier, is just thinking about the ways in which uh, poor able-bodied white males were brought into the racial hierarchy, which is to basically say, economically, you, you're probably not, not much better than these enslaved folk. However, how about if I give you a job, you know, to to regulate these folks, right? And so a lot of able-bodied, poor white folk, able-bodied males in particular, were brought into the racial hierarchy by, 
you know, through their pigmentation, but also through their station, which was to be able to control or have dominion and power over mm-hmm. enslaved folk who were legally enslaved. Mm-hmm. And so that's one space where even though there could be some space for, I would just say, small-ass solidarity, mm-hmm. um, that most often the these folks would, would take the employment opportunity of controlling another human being. And with that, the idea that these folks are, in fact, less than them in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, this is up against a, you know, 200-year, by this time, process of in which uh, black people in general are seen as a subspecies, right? And so that identity, that idea, throughout early modern America, and so, yeah, th- there wouldn't be much reason for a white person to not, to think different about black people mm-hmm. um in this in this particular period that we're thinking about so that's the that's the long of it the short of it is well you have an opportunity to now see their humanity and so now there's some different factors that play that one could tap into that one could think about in terms of sameness rather than mm-hmm. um concrete differences that that pit folks against each other but this is a you know this is an ongoing process there's a lot of new research on on so-called poor white folks Mm-hmm. economically and you know and and there's a but there's a psychological advantage to to being white i mean that's the trick of it is to buy into that psychological advantage to the point where it, it seems um natural and quite um unnatural to to think differently and also i feel like there is a material advantage like i a lot of my peers do stuff that i could never do i'm like if you do that you're gonna get fired and i'm like oh you didn't get fired (laughs) so they have they have a different uh way of moving through the world but yeah um definitely moral moral differences yeah yeah um what you said before about capital expansion and nation building and employment opportunities i feel like is really connected to what we see today with um, prison, private prisons moving to small towns, and the perpetual war we've been in basically my entire lifetime. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the fact that those the war is with those people over there, and so no one really flinches when we, like, how many months ago did we drop the mother of all bombs? In Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. Yeah. And it's, it's not even talked about anymore. It's like it was a blip on the screen, and we just keep moving. Right. Uh, that's I mean that's the that's the one of the the tricks right is um it's really magnificent I mean that part alone is really intriguing about this society that on one hand you can uh, lay claim to to define to to divine um you know to divinity that you that that you are in God's light right mm. that this is you know that you are God's chosen people chosen country. Um, and that you are the measure of capital P progress, right, in modern society. Mm-hmm. And so, but but while you're claiming progress and while society is saying, yes, that's the best nation on earth, somehow that is also in tandem with all of these deficiencies, this reliance on war, militarization, this reliance on incarceration, this inadequate understanding of the racial history, right? All those things are done while the country is also claiming progress and the best, right? And so that's the kind of conundrum. It's a it's a bifurcated kind of space where you can have both things at the same time exist, and and but in the name of democratic pro- progress. And that's the that's the really um, interesting, intriguing thing about how the, the construction of American society. Are there any other like kind of points do you have to kind of bring us to today to this point in history where we have Charlottesville where we have these monuments coming down um and confederate flags coming down and things happening in other places of the world to a, a broad resistance to supremacy yeah no I think I mean again you know one of the things about uh the, the landscape that we're in right now is the use of technology is really, really good. So everybody has some kind of device, you know, that you can go and get information and circulate stuff really, really quickly. I mean, I think that that's probably chiefly responsible for why this discussion of monuments has taken on the fever pitch that it has is because it just got, you know, blown up, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that you couldn't do in previous generations, even though mm-hmm. the problem 
existed and one say one could say that it was even worse right, right. but the point is is um this interesting this interesting dynamic around this question of the monument yes eventually you know a lot of these monuments will be taken down removed they're already doing that um city councils around the country are thinking about what to do not not everyone is going to come down obviously but just the idea that we're going to have that question um be taken seriously for once is one i think that's really important um and i think yeah they should come down i think they should be memorialized in a different kind of way by putting in the museum in the educational space rather than um put in the public square you mm-hmm. know so that all of us you know have to whether we agree with their policies practices or not have to pay homage and reverence to just by default oh, okay. um i do understand that that's a that's a very slippery slope at the same time because then you start to say okay well then what about <laughs> what about all the ones who have what i call escaped history if you will and they uh, are mostly seen in positive light, but they have some very, you know, negative, you know, aspects to their political careers and their public life as well. So, you know, you think about Washington, you think about Thomas Jefferson, you think about the fact that under every president we've ever had, racism and white supremacy has existed. In the 1920s and 30s, you had even open white supremacists in office, you know, in, as elected officials. So the point is, is, you know, this is not new to American society. What's new is the attention that's paid to it. But I would just go one step further and just say, if we are really serious about what these things mean and the legacy of these things, then we won't stop with just removing the statues or removing flags and creating new state flags, which I definitely agree and needs to happen. Um, but we'll also talk about uh, reparative justice or reparation. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a piece that we, even in this, this new found, if you will, um, resurgent interest in talking about the racial history of the country is done in the sense of saying, okay, let's move a- again away from that, but not mm-hmm. let's, you know, not let's talk about reparations or reparative justice and what that, what those things would mean. What would the truth and reconciliation, you know, of American society not in individual states, not in little counties where things have happened, but as a country, what does truth and reconciliation mean? And I think that that, uh, that commitment is, is still a bit out of our reach, but I think that it's one that's right in front of us if we're really serious about taking this conversation where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so that will mean, you know, redoing all the history textbooks, all of them, right, um, you know, from coast to coast. Um, having a broader, more deep, more troubling understanding of how we got to this point. Um, And if you start there, you're going to get a lot that that gets shaken out. You know, you're going to get to move behind the mythology of greatness um, and see America as the construction of human beings making making certain decisions based on the information that they had at that time Mm -hmm. while being severely limited in their understanding of what humanity was about. And I think that that, you know, if we if we understand that, you know, then we can really get generations to come to, to think and act differently. Mm-hmm. But I think that our, our attachment to American exceptionalism, to the idea of, you know, that we're the best, to the fact that you, you can't talk about the problems in American society without in the next breath talking about how great the country is mm-hmm. or else people don't want to talk to you. They see you as a communist. They see you as a race baiter. They see you as somebody who's um, a traitor, perhaps, yeah. you know. And so th- th- those kind of practices is, is part of is part of the reason why we never have a true account of how we got to this point. So if you start with, you know, the educational space, yeah. that, gives you, that gives you the space to... Um, really change how people think about the country. And again, the last thing I will say is, it is everybody's choice whether they want to, quote-unquote, love America or not, right? Because that becomes the other piece, is that the moment you start criticizing, then people say, you just don't love this country. Right, you're that's how the That's how the mainstream looks at it. Like, the, the response that Colin Kaepernick is getting, you know, the response that mm. Michael Bennett is getting, you know, when law officials are going to say, "Well, we're not going to, we're going to, we're going to do a, um, a vote of no confidence and not right. and not to not protect your life, even though you're a professional athlete at work, right? And you're p- being paid to do this. 
Um, and the fact that Colin Kaepernick, no team wants him because, you know, they're afraid that the fans are going to revolt. I mean, this is the way in which, you know, uh, we protect ourselves against a real truthful and open discussion of how we got to this point. So we're still a long ways out, but I think the answers are right in front of us. And I guess, like James Baldwin, as long as I'm alive, I guess I have to maintain some kind of hope. But it's not a naive hope, and it's not with this unfettered faith in American society that it will correct itself. I think we have to do that. We have to be all hands on deck and unapologetic in our um, ambitious attempt to seek out the truth. That is correct. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It was really helpful, and I think that maybe that will be our next show. We'll have to do a show on reparative justice and what that might look like, what that might be. Um, yeah. Even though we're a long way off, we do have to maintain hope and keep the struggle alive. Absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor. Thanks. I was glad to hear you doing radio. And, <laughs> great. Um, I look forward. I look forward to continued collaboration down the line. Sounds okay. good. Have a great Bye. Sunday. Bye bye. Do the same. Thanks. Bye bye. That was Chris Tennyson, professor of Africana Studies and History at Hampshire College. Um, we will be soon be joined by Carly. What's Carly's last name? Fox. Carly Fox. Yes. In just one minute, we're going to take a really brief break. She's not even a full break. <laughs> yeah. Um, she is a history teacher at Vermont Academy. Um, yes. And so um, Carly studied in one of our um, study groups, Construction of Whiteness, um, a few months back. And so we're gonna, we've are gonna we invited her to talk about her experience of the study group. And at the end, we'll also talk to you about our upcoming um, study group that will be at Antioch University in Keene, um, and the Construction of Whiteness that will be starting on Monday, September 25th for four Mondays. And we'll give you more information um, after we speak with Carly. Carly, are you there? I'm here. Yeah, hi. <laughs> hi. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you all? Good. Thank you so much for coming onto the show with us. Um, so we wanted to ask you um, about the the study group and the construction of whiteness. Um, what are some things that you got out of that study group? And if you could talk a little bit about things that you learned in the study group that may... Uh, that may have been different from what you learned growing up about whiteness. Sure, sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, as a kid, when I was growing up, certainly in my family, and I would say in most of my education until really I, until I got to graduate school, um, race really wasn't something that was talked about and certainly not whiteness as a construction. Um, and I imagine as a young kid, I you know learned many of the origin myths uh, of the, the founding of the United States. And I don't think I thought a lot about race. Um, and if I did, I imagine I, I, that I thought of it as something that was probably a central, um, biological, unchanging. And I certainly didn't think of it as something that had a history, and you know, that is to say something that, that changed. And I imagine that I also thought about racism in terms of something that had happened in the past. Um, in the study group, we focused a lot on undoing a lot of these myths that I think most of us, um, many of us who grew up in the United States, probably learned to an extent. Um, and so we focused a lot on talking about race, and in particular whiteness, as something that has a history, um, and how does that, how has that history changed, and what has been the, the purpose of constructing this category and this ideology mm-hmm. of whiteness and race as a construct, um, and to... Um, who has that benefited and how is that intersected with other systems of oppression and exploitation um, in terms of class and gender, ability, sexuality. So the course really gave me um, a more articulate and definite history of the United States for one to go through and, and not just talk theoretically about what it means for race to be something that is socially and historically constructed, but to really look specifically at, at here is every point in U.S. history and these very important turning points where we can see this, this category, you know, quite clearly being constructed and these are the way that, these are the ways that it's benefiting a particular um, group of power and giving a particular um, economic base and economic power to particular people. Um, so I, I would say, to, to sum it up, it gave me a, a much clearer 
history, historical timeline of mm-hmm. the United States and specifically how whiteness has been a huge part of defining the United States. Mm. And you're a teacher, uh, a history teacher yeah. at Vermont yeah. Academy. Um, how have you brought what you've learned um, either into the classroom or, um, or in your work um, as an activist in the community? Sure. So um, certainly it's one thing, like I was saying, to talk about race as something that is constructed, right? But when I go into a, a high school history class with 15 and 16-year-olds, that doesn't really mean anything for me to say race is something that is historically and socially constructed. And so the, the history, and, and a lot of it I, I was familiar with, but there was quite a lot um, that, uh, that I wasn't, um, or that, was, um, that I was able to go more in depth with in the class. And so, you know, for example, I, we just started um, classes this week, and so I'll be teaching about, you know, the kind of the so-called founding of the United States. And mm-hmm. an event in particular that I focus and spend a very, very long time on is Bacon's Rebellion. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a concrete event where students can start to see, oh, this category of race, the way that we think about race today, didn't always exist. Mm-hmm. And who are these different groups at play? What kind of... Um, what goals did they have in creating a system of racism? Who were they trying to divide and how were they trying to maintain their power? And so that timeline that I got from the class, um, you know, Bacon's Rebellion being one example, but you can really go through the history of the United States and find those events um, into the New Deal all the way up into our present moment. Um, so that has been very helpful. And certainly starting the school year coming away from this summer, it's given me a really wonderful framework to um, to think about and to frame the events in Charleston mm. when we talk about historical memory and what what is at stake in that historical memory. Um, I think students are aware of that and, and, and concerned about it, but they certainly don't they don't have the historical foundation to understand how significant something like Charlottesville is um, right. and how it connects to U.S. history. Right. Um, is there is there anything you'd like to add about the study group before we wrap up? Um, just for me personally, you know, certainly as an educator, the group was important for me. But just personally, um, to create community and to talk about um, what we mean by this construct of whiteness mm-hmm. uh, was very important. So I'd really encourage folks in the community to participate. Um, I think that Brattleboro Solidarity Solidarity is planning to hold more events like this. Yes. Um, so I'd really encourage folks in the community to be involved with that. Um, I think um, a huge part of anti-racism work for me is just those initial steps of getting together and yep. talking with other folks about what this means and building community that way. So, Great. yeah, thank you for the work you're doing. And I um, continue to encourage other folks to get involved. Thank you, Carly. And um, good luck with the beginning of the school year. And we hope to see you again soon. Can we ask thank you one you. question before? I just want to ask you, um, people often say that kids are too young, like young the high schoolers are too young, the middle schoolers yeah. are too young to talk about complex issues. So yeah. I just want to know what you would say to that before you take um, it Yes, you know, I, I strongly disagree with that. Um, first of all, intellectually, I, I don't think kids are in, incapable at all of talking about these things. And we, I think it's naive to think that students aren't already thinking about and talking about these things. They're engaged in our world. And if we're not doing this in the school, they are receiving messages from other, other areas that... Um, perhaps aren't the messages that we want to send to them and are confusing to them. And I think um, school is, is the, and in the, the, in the home, these are places where we need to have these conversations. And I actually really would say, you know, I'm, it's wonderful to start talking about these in high school. Um, But for me, high school is not the place to start. I think this really needs to start when students enter school um, Mm -hmm. as, as, as even younger students. Um, So in my experience, um, I, I would encourage uh, all you know families and educators, people who work with youth, that these are the questions that our kids um, are grappling with already, and we have a responsibility to um, educate ourselves and engage these conversations in a responsible and meaningful and critical way with our young people. Thank Great. you so much. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Take care. Take you care. Too. Bye. 
So, um, yes, if you are interested in participating in Brattleboro Solidarity's next construction of whiteness study group, um, it is going to be held at Antioch University. Um, the study group will, uh, that, and that's in Keene, New Hampshire. Um, it'll be Monday, the first... Uh, study group is Monday, September 25th, and then October 2nd, 9th, and the 16th. It's from 6 to 7.30. There will be soup and bread, and we hope that the participants will commit to all four um, study groups. And if you'd like more information, um, if you want to register for the study group, or if you want to just get the readings for yourself, please email brattleborosolidarity at gmail.com. Once again, brattleborosolidarity at gmail.com. Or you can go to Indigo Radio Facebook page also. Yeah, or Brattleboro Solidarity um, Facebook page. Yeah, we have some information up there as well. Um, so once again, as we wrap up, you've been listening to Indigo Radio um, on the Brattleboro Community Radio Station, 107.7 FM. Please check out our Facebook page, um, Indigo Radio Instagram, and this show will be uh, on iTunes hopefully by the end of the day today, and you could listen to it if you missed portions of it. Um, and um, next week, most of us in Brattleboro Solidarity are going to be up in Montpelier in a 5K run called Race Against Racism. However, um, Becca Polk will have something special for us because um, she's staying here in town. And um, so please tune in then. And we'll leave today with um, Nina Simone's Young, Gifted, and Black. Thank you. Thank you. Must be.